What's up? Pete Kennedy here of Subway Sports Talk, and we have a great episode planned for you guys today. In our second segment, we talk to our designated hitter, Andrew Kalanya, to wrap up the baseball season, put a pin in it, put a fork in it. It's done for the Mets and Yankees, and thank God it is because this year was a massive disappointment. But we discuss if there's any hope in turning the page towards 2024, what the Mets are doing with David Stearns at the helm, what the Yankees are doing with Aaron Boone still at the helm. And other than that, it's a lot of negative, maybe a little positive when it comes to baseball, but all positive. We talked to a wonderful guy in our first segment. His name is Joel Cohen. He's been writing on this show you may have heard of. It's called The Simpsons for over 20 years, and he has multiple Emmys. He also just co-authored a book with the one and only sports icon, Dan Patrick. They co-authored, put it together. It's called The Occasionally Accurate Annals of Football. The NFL's greatest players plays scandals and screw-ups. We talk about all things NFL, football, media, the writer strike, writing for the Simpsons, all this great stuff with Joel Cohen, the Emmy Award winner. What a time chatting with him, chopping it up, just kind of messing around, talking some football because it's what they do in the book. They drop the history. They got the factoids, but they have fun, and they make fun of the game we all love so much because sometimes it really is just hilarious. And Joel Cohen, again, the occasionally accurate annals of football, the NFL's greatest players play scandals and screw-ups with the one and only Dan Patrick. We spoke to him. It was a great time. So please enjoy this episode. That's all we got for now. Listen to the music. Welcome to Subway Sports Talk. Dan, 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 clear of the closing doors, please. Subway Sports Talk. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in to SST on Apple Podcasts, app, Spotify, and on YouTube. Joining me today, a very special guest to talk about some special stuff. We have an Emmy Award winner. We have a writer on The Simpsons for over 20 years, and now the co-author of a brand new book with someone you may be very familiar with, and if you're not, I don't know what you're doing, uh, with the great one and only Dan Patrick. We have Joel Cohen here, co-author with him. We're going to talk about that book in just a second it's called the occasionally accurate annals of football and joel thank you for joining subway sports talk uh, thank you for having me and and i'd like to correct the title already annals not annals annals oh jesus oh how my dare God. you how that's, dare you that's the worst type of slip you can ever have it's not the worst now I mean, there there's... had to have been some sort of <laughs> there had to be some sort of uh and that's 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 my bad but there had to be some sort of comedic choice with that word off the jump right like clearly this is a, a book to make people reminisce laugh and etc uh so there had to be a choice there no uh, yeah 100 percent. and i'll say my mind goes right to anals as well and when we were talking about the title which we <laughs> seem to talk about forever i was like guys we think we go with annals everyone's gonna think anal it's gonna happen over and over and over again and then all the people at Publishing House are like, I want to do Al- Almanac. I want to be the occasionally accurate Almanac, which I think would have been better. But then it was like, mm. no, everyone knows on annals, the annals of sport, the annals of this. And it was like a, a fight. And then I like to say that I've been proven right, but it's one of these sort of 
empty victories because the book is published and it says annals, annals on it already. So, so yeah, that was my mistake right off the rip and uh, apologies for that, but it's okay. That's what we're here for to talk about this, this great book and this great opportunity to chat with somebody who's done a lot. And now is an interesting time to talk to somebody who's a writer and we're going to talk possibly about the strike in a little bit, which has come to an end and yes. that must be exciting for you. But right now this book has been, has been the, the big thing. And I just want to ask this for starters. Dan Patrick, one of the legends of the industry, yep. an absolutely iconic guy in the world of sports. How did that relationship come to? Obviously, he's he's been a comedic style broadcaster when he wants to be. He's so naturally charismatic and funny. So how did you connect with Dan Patrick and how did this book come to fruition as an idea to then an actual written product? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as was mentioned, and uh, I'm sure we'll be mentioned again, I work on The Simpsons. I've worked there forever. And I wrote an episode um, that has a, a sportscaster character in it. And uh, I thought, wow, Dan, who else would be better than Dan? Because I'm a huge fan. I listen every morning. So uh, we recast him into this role in The Simpsons, and he was nice enough to agree to do it. And then just in the process of working with him and recording him, he has like maybe five lines, 10 lines. Um, we just started talking, he and I, and goofing around a little bit, talking about football and stuff that I thought was kind of stupid or slash funny. He mentioned stuff that he thought was funny. Um, obviously, he knows so much more about the game than I do. And then just from that conversation, we kind of were going back and forth and we're like, you know, maybe this is a book. Um, and as it turns out, maybe it is. Um, so, yeah, just that was like over a year and a half ago. The episode's going to actually air in December. Uh, people will get to hear Dan's uh, beautiful voice um, in The Simpsons. But, yeah, so we just started working together and uh, one thing led to another. And here's the book. So now you've been writing on The Simpsons for over 20 years, which is something that is an incredible feat. Because staying, especially this day and age, staying in, in a job for that long means that, A, you're doing a good job. B, that the product that's going out is good. And obviously The Simpsons, you know, the resume speaks for itself. It's the longest running show, I believe, on network television. Is that is that correct? I believe that's right, right? Uh, the longest running, yes. It, it, we just, not just, about four or five years ago, we passed uh, Gunsmoke. If anyone out there is alive to remember Gunsmoke. Uh, yeah, Gunsmoke. And we became the, the most number of episodes uh, like if it, it's a bit, we're the longest running scripted primetime show, because if you look at shows like Saturday Night Live, for example, they're 40 right. years, but, but screw them, right? This is about me, not them. It's all about, it's all about you and some of the other guys who were, uh, instrumental to this book. I mean, guys listed Andy Richter from Conan O'Brien. You got Adam Sandler, I believe wrote the forward. So yep. a bunch of, uh, great minds came together to write this book. And again, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. I do want to talk about you cause this is about you for a yeah, second I here. So you know, yeah, born was... in, in Calgary, Canada, and I just want to ask, you know, we spoke a little bit before we started recording about your history of sports, uh, fanhood, and et cetera. So when did the NFL become something that you care deeply about enough to partake in a book like this? Have, have you been a fan of the NFL your entire life? Did it kind of grow over time or when you moved to the States? Kind of when did football become something for you that you would see yourself writing a book about? Uh, well, I've been a sports fan forever, uh, kind of a crappy athlete, but maybe that makes the best sports fans. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so obviously growing up in Canada, huge hockey fan, lived and breathed hockey, uh, enjoyed baseball in the heyday when I was growing up. The Expos were kind of good, the Montreal Expos and the Blue Jays. Uh, actually, I was in Canada when they won their two World Series. But but I was saying uh, earlier, where I grew up in Canada and Calgary, we used to get the games from Washington State, from Spokane or television, which was always the Seahawks games. Um, so I became a huge Seahawks fan. And it was back in the era going way back of like Steve Largent, Jim Zorn and the Seahawks sucked. 
um, and they had to do trick plays all the time. And when you're a kid and you that's all you want is trick plays. So it was like the most captivating thing to watch uh, these crazy trick plays. And I just became a huge Seahawks fan. And then, um, as I sort of mentioned as well, now that I've gotten older and sort of, uh, you know, lost myself in the, the dark arts of fantasy football, uh, you know, your loyalty gets split pretty quickly when you have a running back you need eight points from and he's playing the Seahawks. Screw the Seahawks. I want the eight points. So that's where I'm at now. Yeah, I hear you. As somebody who has six fantasy teams, which is about four too many, it, yes. it's a whirlwind on Sundays when you're watching seven hours of commercial-free football and you don't even know if you're rooting for somebody, against somebody. You have them on one team. They're going yep. against you in the other league. But it's the beauty that we all appreciate on a Sunday. So yes. that that makes sense. And, and obviously your love of sports also kind of shows into The Simpsons. The Simpsons has touched on a million different things over the years. But sports and and these things, like predictions that obviously have become a larger than life part of The Simpsons at this point, is something that has shown up on the show over and over again, not just with sports, but politics, pop culture, et cetera, about these predictions. You've written a number of episodes on your own, and then you've obviously contributed to many others. So let me ask you from a prediction standpoint, is there any one prediction that you particularly wrote, whether it be on purpose or by accident, that you came true that almost shocked you or is anything that stands out in your mind that came first on the Simpsons that's come true in real life that kind of blew you away that you almost don't believe it. Oh, that's interesting. I'm the thing is, uh, I, like I definitely have been there when stuff has been predicted. Uh, like I've been on episodes where it's like, Oh yeah, the Simpsons are watching the Super Bowl. Of course we need a score on the TV. Why don't we just say it's uh, you know, 38, 14 Patriots over whomever. And then of course, whatever we say that, ironically, coincidentally, luckily, unluckily becomes the truth. So it's not like that's like a prediction. It's never like a, a major thing where I'm like, I predict, you know, that uh, Aaron Rodgers will take a snap and a third play and, and be out for the season. No one has predicted that specific, but occasionally we get lucky where some dumb thing we just throw into the show actually becomes true. Uh, but I'll also say I've written a lot of episodes that haven't aired yet. And even episodes I've written before, Maybe the predictions are, are, are past the present day and they're going to come true. So, like, you know, I guess we just have to wait to the end of time to really know whether I've predicted anything or not. <laughs> yeah. But as more episodes come out and and luckily now you guys are being able to, to get back into it, which is probably exciting for you and your team. But I do want to ask about a writer's room in general, just the idea of multiple people with multiple ideas, different types of humor, different types of writing. What type of comparison can you make to a sport team to be a part of a writing team? Because obviously you wrote this book as a part of a, a bit of a team. You've written a book with Andy Richter. Uh, that was obviously part of a, a little team as well. And then all your stuff with the Simpsons and Saturday Night Live, et cetera. It's very team oriented. And even though some of the content is the least bit sports oriented, there always is that that team competitive nature that takes place. So what type of comparisons can you make from a writer's room to a sports uh, setup? It's actually a great question. And I think a lot of people think about this idea of people in a writer's room. Uh, you know, we need a joke for for this line for Homer or for what the sign joke or whatever it is. And I think people's first instinct a lot of times is to think it's very competitive. And you're like, I want to be the guy and I want to be the guy that gets the line in. And while, yes, of course, we all want to be the guy that scores the touchdown. For us, most of the time, there's just such a mountain of work. We just want somebody to score the touchdown and we just you're it's almost more collaborative like a team if you're all on a football team or a baseball team or whatever um you know you ultimately just want to kind of get the win and it's nice if you are getting the individual credit but 
um, it's more collaborative like a team than it is competitive within the team. Um, so we're all working together towards the same goal. There, You could probably stretch out an analogy to say that different people have some different skills, like some people might be better at thinking of the story and some people might be better at just providing the jokes. Um, hopefully we all have some skills in those areas, but there's a little bit of that idea of just everyone working together to get to where we got to get to, much like a sports team. Mm. It, it, it makes a ton of sense. And even in, in standard workplaces, that those types of things come about. And right, there's always somebody who wants the credit, but at the end of the day, it comes down to whatever that title is on a, for you know a bad analogy on the front of the jersey right on the front of the company on the front of the the, the television show or the product that is really going to be the winner of it all uh, but totally. i want to talk to you about some stuff in the book as well um there's a portion of the book and this is a little bit um timely as well because yes. this team needs some help so there's a section in the book where you guys talk about fixing the new york jets and that has been you know, there's a famous Artie Lang joke about the Jets and they how they are better than a woman because they always fuck you. <laughs> it's just something yes, that exactly. Artie Lang said in a joke probably pretty twenty funny. something years ago. What was that? No, I said that's true. That's pretty funny because it's it's accurate and you say it's timely. It's timeless. <laughs> the Jets have sucked forever, right? They just are continue and even this year, yeah, like right. they just continue to suck. <laughs> I like I said, the most Jets thing ever happened to the Jets. Like, are should we surprised by that? Like they just they find a way to suck. I think that's their, we don't appreciate them for, they own the market for sucking and no one gives them credit for that. We all look to them to win, but why don't we celebrate their commitment to losing? They're so good at it. it they're the best at it. Uh, but, you, you can argue they've been doing it so well for so long. Uh, they haven't made the playoffs in over 10 years at this point. So you guys have a, a, a part of the book where you fix the Jets. And I kind of, you know, I don't want you to give it away, but what's part of this foolproof plan that you think could make the Jets champions again? I, I'm, I'm a little curious here. Listen, man, I'm, I'm happy to give it away. Uh, the, the, we basically just walk through all the all the screw ups the Jets have had in their history, except for in a way we make the argument the biggest screw up was when they won the Super Bowl, because this is a franchise that has de dedicated themselves to losing and they let their guard down one time. And look what happened. They win the Super Bowl. So that's a that's a mark of shame on the Jets that they they just couldn't even do the thing they were built to do, which was to lose. Uh, but then we get into like basically talking about Belichick, you know, leaving after one day. The butt fumble, there's a there's a haiku about the butt fumble. There's a limerick about the butt fumble. There's a, a bit of a song, the ballad of the butt fumble. Uh, we just talk about all the screw-ups and idiotic things. And and by the way, we had to cut so much stuff. Like, uh, I don't even think it's in here anymore. Geno Smith getting punched in the jaw and breaking his jaw. Uh, do you remember that? Like during training camp, like 10 years ago? Oh, of that, course. I don't know if that is actually in the book. I haven't read the book. Uh, I don't encourage anyone to. But no, I, I mean, it, there's a bunch <laughs> of stuff in the book. Um, and then at the end, we just kind of go through and look at all the scripts they've made and talk about the ways to fix the Jets. Like every time they go into a draft, don't do what they think they should do. Just do the opposite of that or just listen to what the commentators are saying on TV and let them draft for you. And then ultimately we talk about how even like uh, the stadium itself is a, is a train wreck and there's it because they named it after uh, the airport that it was built next to. And so that ultimately in the end, we kind of propose that the way to win the Jets is a to move to Portland because everyone likes the airport there. And then also change their name to the Patriots, hoping for clerical error that someone will give the Jets, the new Patriots, the points where they meant to give the Patriots the points. So ultimately, the way to fix the Jets is to a bunch of steps that lead to them being the Portland Patriots. There you go. Abolish the Jets, move them to Portland. Yeah. And and you know what? That, that stadium that you just mentioned, too. I don't know if you've been there or seen it. I nope. always joke that it literally looks like a giant air conditioner. Yeah. Like. 
you walk into that parking lot and you're like, all right, that's a stadium, but there's just, there's nothing to it. There's nothing cool about it. You see some of these uh, amazing stadiums. I believe you're out in, in California. Yep. SoFi Stadium is a spectacle. The stadium in Atlanta is a spectacle. And here we are in New York slash New Jersey, I guess, We're supposed yeah. to be one of the best cities and states in the world. And we have a, an air conditioner in a parking lot <laughs> next to the freaking swamps of New Jersey. It, it's not what you want. No, it, it, you're like you said, it's it's the mecca of of money and people and fan interest and all these things. And even garnering all that, they just can't get it together to at least be aesthetically pleasing. Like like you said, make the experience good if you can't make the product good um, or the game, the actual on field product good. But uh, yeah, I've got beefs against SoFi Stadium, too. But it, it is visually beautiful. But the food sucks. Parking sucks, et cetera. Yeah, a lot of you hear a lot of that with the L.A. area that as beautiful as some of the stuff is, I've never been to SoFi that it's just such a pain in the ass to get there, get out of there. And maybe that's true to all stadiums, but it seems like people complain about it in LA a lot. Is, is it true though? Is the traffic really that bad out there? I'm even, I'm in my car right now. I'm leaving a game I went to in 2021. Uh, that's how it SoFi right now. It sucks so bad. No, it, <laughs> it's, it's brutal. It's a hundred bucks to park. I think honestly, the food is not great. It's just, it's just a, uh, it's not great. I mean, obviously the Rams won the Super Bowl uh, a little while ago, and I kind of like the Chargers, but uh, it's it's not a great experience. It's, the last thing I'll say, because this podcast I know is about ripping into SoFi, is they like most stadiums, they have a giant TV <laughs> like uh, hoisted in the in the middle of the field, and you end up just watching the giant TV, and you're like, why did I spend all this time and money and eat crappy food to just watch TV with you know whatever it is 40, 50, 60 thousand strangers? Uh, I could be at home with two strangers watching TV. At least when you're there, it's not, uh, you know, 30 degrees and raining like it, it often is in, in December in MetLife. I would say January, but the Jets and Giants don't frequent the playoffs with home field no, advantage. Exactly, so exactly. haven't experienced that in some time. <laughs> but let's keep it New York based one more time before we move into okay. some other stuff. There's also sure. a whole uh, Super Bowl highlight section. You guys talk about the David Tyree famous helmet catch and the <laughs> truth behind it. Because, again, yeah. this is the the occasionally accurate annals of football so what's the uh, occasionally accurate truth behind david tyree's spectacular super bowl catch well let me just back it up for a second and say the whole idea of the book is is to make a really fun look at the nfl and having fun with the the beauty and the and the less beautiful parts of it um so we it, the book has a lot of actual history of the nfl and the the genesis of a lot of the teams and actually rule changes great players great coaches etc but of course we examine great moments one of the greatest moments ever in the nfl we all remember is david tyree's helmet catch and we go we report what we all saw but we actually go beyond that dan and i uh, bravely and and talk about the truth behind that which is that when david tyree was a little boy he had a lot of forethought and foresight, and he started feeding uh, iron shavings to cows that he knew would eventually be turned into football leather. Um, and then at the same time, also <laughs> spent a lot of time magnetizing his helmet. So it wasn't even a matter of athleticism when he caught the ball. It was just physics that, of course, the iron shaving full football was attracted to his magnetized helmet, and it just was stuck there. His hands were almost not necessary for the catch. The ball would have been there and might still be there for all we know in the Hall of Fame today. He just kind of ran out on the field and let let physics do its work. So, David Tyree, if you're listening to this, and I assume you are, uh, you shouldn't be as proud as you are of that catch. Yeah, all this time checking out Tom Brady's balls, they should have been checking out Tyree's. It's it's, it's obvious at this point. They should have, they should have done something there. They're they're in the book. We 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 dive deep. We scratch the surface beyond the surface of Tom Brady's balls. And how many people have done that? 
I assume like a hundred, but we're one, Dan and I are two of them. <laughs> and, and how instrumental was it for, like you versus Dan coming up with some of these like overarching concepts, right? Cause obviously you, you just kind of laid it out of how, you know, you are diving into, you know, the other sides, the, the serious and less serious parts of football and, and making light of some of the situations and obviously paying homage to some of the more important and serious stuff. How did that work with you and Dan of kind of like coming up with some of these concepts and then obviously writing them out? You know, were you and Dan in a room together? Were you on Zooms together? Were you just spitballing, going through the history books, coming up with funny ideas and, and interesting things to talk about? What, what was that process like? Yeah, it was it was more of the latter where just like, uh, you know, he would have a 100 ideas. I'd have 100 ideas. Uh, we ran out of space. Some of them just didn't prove to be that funny or that good. But, you know, like um, just picking examples, you know, Dan would just say, I think it's really funny. Let's talk about penalties and how the idiotic penalties have become. And let's do a whole thing on that. And then he had a funny idea, many funny ideas, but I'm just some that are coming to my mind about comparing Tom Brady's diet uh, to Kenny Stabler's diet. Kenny Stabler, famous partier for the Raiders. Um, and, uh, you know, Tom Brady eats a fish that is also on the Tom Brady diet. Uh, and Kenny Stabler has a bacon wrapped cigarette for breakfast. Um, so like, you know, just comparing stuff like that, but, uh, and then, you know, so I would pitch ideas to him, he'd throw ideas at me. And then it was just like, let's flesh them out. Let's cobble it together. Ultimately, of course it was too long. We would cut some stuff out. We knew we wanted to talk about every team and the history. So it kind of really just kind of fleshed itself out and peppering in these little ideas throughout. Yeah. And it is funny. Football is one of those sports that you get such a range of human beings who play the sport you get guys who like you said take their diet so freaking serious and then you have dk metcalf who literally looks like a robot of a, like yes. he looks like the terminator and he has been on the record over and over again talking how he eats skittles and candy and that's the main thing that he eats in his diet not like not even just like before a game for some energy but monday through saturday my man's out here eating candy and looking like he should be on the cover of of um you know Arnold Schwarzenegger's magazine or something like that. So it, it is interesting and funny how you get the eclectic change of, of different people in football. And that just leads to an amazing range of people like Marshawn Lynch is one of the most unique characters in the world of sports still out here on commercials, doing TV stuff. That's just right there. That's room for riffing and making jokes because you can't imagine that some of these incredible athletes treat their bodies the way they do. And people like you and I sitting out here with a microphone and, and some notepads, you know, we could be eating the same diet as DK Metcalf and, and, you know, people looking down on us for it. No, it's true. And, and as much as you're hundred percent right, uh, then there's also guys like, you know, D, um, pardon me. Um, Marshawn Lynch is in the book, of course. And, and, he, you know, we endorse his weed company, but also like, uh, you know, then you look at guys like the fridge or these giant linemen that, that can, there was a, a fullback this last weekend. I forget maybe on the Falcons that ran back a, a botch kind of kick or a squib kick. And they, this guy's like probably 260, 270 and out running everybody on the field. So these guys are just incredible athletes. Um, whether they, they eat, you know, the rainbow uh, of Skittles or just like, you know, have a gravy drip in their arm, like an IV, uh, and getting heavy, but they're, they're still regardless these incredible, incredible athletes that, uh, make us normal losers look exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of a normal, I won't say losers, but speaking of the normal people who are involved in football, you guys also talk about the media and the impact of TV on the game of football, which we kind of mentioned before. Sometimes you go to a game and you go, you know, I kind of wish I was on the couch watching 
you know, eight games at once in the Octobox right now. Right. But talking about the media and TV, which you've been a part of in other ways, but not specifically through football. So what did you guys come to um, from a critique standpoint or a media's impact standpoint uh, about the game of football? Well, uh, I don't know that we criticize that much, but we do definitely delve into stuff like the, you know, we all love the uh, first down line and, and uh, the technology of the first down line and players being mic'd up. And we report on some of the best and worst and made up trash talk in the game. Uh, we talk about like the field goal target line. We just talk about the impact that the NFL has had on TV. I think in, I'm going to say a statistic, which is probably bullshit, but read the book to find out. Um, anyhow, like that something like in 2021, 21 of the top 25 TV broadcasts were NFL games. Like it is the monster of, of viewership uh, amongst the American public. And if Taylor Swift attends, it's even that much more. Uh, but then, of course, we even delve into all the media personalities, including uh, a pretty hard hitting uh, critique of Dan himself. Um, you know, and we talk about Howard Cosell and Jim Nance and all these guys, but yeah, we, we try to cover the gamut a little bit of, of how TV and uh, has, has affected the game and how the game has affected TV conversely. And now what do you think about when there's people, you know, let's say like you and me who are on TV, who are analysts or, you know, talking heads, pundits, maybe like Dan, who are on their radio shows, on their podcast, critiquing these freak athletes for saying, you know, this guy should have ran harder. This guy should have caught that ball. How do you not make that tackle? What does it sound like to you who, you know, you have like the writer's lens or the comedic lens on things when you see a Joe Schmo sitting in front of a microphone yelling at why so-and-so missed a tackle and how pathetic it was or how bad Zach Wilson is at playing quarterback. You know, my grandma would be better than that, right? Like all these things that get said. What do you think when athletes snap back at the, the Joe Schmo, the regular guy who is here to criticize their football team and their performances. I mean, I love it. And it's obviously all entertainment, right? So like we want, uh, we just love every facet of it where like Stephen A. Smith, that guy is not a human being, right? That's a character. And we even made a character about him on The Simpsons called Anger Watkins. <laughs> it just rants about everything. Um, and and these guys, it's all entertainment value. You know, they, they're just kind of provocateurs trying to, to draw in as many viewers as they can and make us viewers, listeners angry and fired up. So we contribute and we, we interact with them. And then the players have their own right. And they're also brands of their own. Um, and they of course can defend themselves. And, and obviously I think we all know, like if we really thought about it an analytically, like the, the fourth string punter on the bears is like a better athlete than anyone we've ever met in our entire life. He just is playing with the elite of the elite. Um, so hopefully we just, I just see it for entertainment value and we try to mock it in the book on the Simpsons, wherever for entertainment value. But uh, I don't put too much stock in uh, Colin Cowherd, you know, or I'll say Dan or anybody kind of, you know, trying to stir the pot a little bit by being controversial and the players too. It's just all for fun. It is all for fun. I think most people, probably are in alignment with you and I am I'll say I'm in alignment with you on that where we try not to take it too too serious and then then you go on Twitter or X whatever the hell it's called and you see <laughs> people taking it way too serious and that also becomes part of the entertainment factor right where you see you didn't mention Skip Bayless and I don't know if you know him or not but I'll mention yeah, him yeah. to talk about a caricature of a, of a human being you know Skip Bayless is out here saying some of the most wild things you could possibly think of and people like hate hate him and they hate Stephen A. Smith and they hate the cowherds of the world. And I, I'm pretty sure Dan has a pretty high Q rating. I don't think there's a lot of people out here hating on Dan Patrick. 
but these guys stir the pot so well that I actually have gone full circle on it where I don't even get mad. I'm just like, I am impressed that a human being can come up daily for four hours a day sometimes on television with things to say that are going to get the people going and get them tuned in. From from your perspective as a comedy writer, there has to be some some sort of respect there, even if you know that they're just a caricature at this point. A hundred percent. Like that's a huge skill is just taking the the opposite position, which is often the way we get to a funny story idea or a funny joke, but yet just fomenting anger in your listeners because it leads to ratings or whatever. I, I, of course I know Skip Bayless and, and like Stephen A. Smith, like, you know, he just piles on the Cowboys, which of course is just like throwing red meat in front of Cowboys fans. And it's great. And then the fun is also, you know, watching Cowboy fans react. Like you said, it's, it's just us watching this uh, exchange of, of uh, I'll say idiotic opinions on both sides. Uh, But that's the fun of it. Right. And, And I hope I love when people, I love it when people know it's a joke, but I love it even more when people don't know it's a joke and get really fired up about it and like are really invested in what this complete stranger has to say about this thing they they've decided to care about. Yeah, it's uh, it's my favorite thing to do on on Twitter. Sometimes you see like a clearly it's a joke graphic. Like you said, you play fantasy football, right? So they there's a graphic that's like five players you should start this week. And it's like week two. Right. And Aaron Rodgers is on the list and other guys who are out for the years on the list. Tom Brady's on the list. And you go to the comments thinking that everybody's going to get the joke. And then people are saying, what type of account is this? Like, you're, don't you know this guy's out for the year? They're so mad. Like, oh, how does this account get followers? This is such a joke. And it's like, what? You really didn't get that? Like, you didn't pick up that all five of those players are not in the league? Like, I think Antonio Brown was on the list. My guy hasn't played football in about a year and a half. Right. And it just it blows my mind, but I have so much fun reading those comments that people just can't grasp the idea that they're just making light they're making some jokes it's just jokes people yeah that's you see that you know when you work as i dare say i do in the world of comedy like i just know so often that there's like even as you mentioned i've written books before this and lots of episodes and even on this book i see comments of like what the hell were they talking about this this and this and it's and then it's obviously a joke but there's no way you're ever going to, whoever that person is, there's no way you're ever going to explain to them that it's a joke or bring them into the world of a joke. And yeah, it's just, we just have to take that. First of all, maybe it's not funny. Maybe the things that are written in some cases are not funny, <laughs> but a lot of times you have seven comments. Oh my God. I like that, that Instagram post you're talking about nine out of 10 people are like this is hilarious. This is hilarious. And then the one out of 10 person is like that angered response. So, uh, we just live in a world where, you know, we, we, uh, we can ignore our critics. That's what I'll say. Just believe the people that, that think you're great and ignore the critics. That's good advice for all of us. So on that note, it feels to me, and obviously you'll know better than I, but it feels to me that the Simpsons have been able to kind of live above some of that stuff, which is kind of attributed to all you guys and the incredible writing that's gone into the show. But in this world where jokes get people canceled and all this crap that comedians deal with all the time with their stand up and et cetera, the Simpsons has pushed the envelope in every corner that they've had a chance to. But is it fair to me to say that if it feels like the Simpsons actually kind of live above that and don't actually have to deal with some of that pushback and cancel culture BS that, you know, clearly the Simpsons is a comedy, right? And as much as there's some truth in episodes and there's um, truths at the heart of some jokes, do you think you guys have been able to kind of live above that? And what's it been like for you as a writer to try and deal with all that? Uh, I would like to say we have lived about it, but I, I also know we haven't like, um, 
a couple things. There's kind of a famous uh, news story for anyone that follows The Simpsons about uh, we had non-ethnic actors doing the voices of ethnic characters. Apu is was our Cookie right. Mart storekeeper, and we changed the voice. Well, actually, we haven't really changed the voice, but there's many other characters we did change the voice as a reaction to sort of. I don't want to say that's cancel culture, but that's what they call ethnically correct casting. But we do a lot of jokes where we do get feedback and pushback. Uh, if if you were ever to come to the Simpsons uh, production assistant office, when, and why would you? You'd be shot by a sniper trying to. But anyhow, there's a million letters there uh, from people that have written in angry letters about a joke or a storyline. We did a gay marriage episode like, I don't know, I'm going to say 10 years ago. Um, and there's a we got a million angry letters and we still us writers all quote one of the quotes from the letter that even the least wise doubter would shrink from such impiety. So we'll say that every now and then because that's a, a quote that came to us in a letter about gay marriage. But and else, as much as I say that we've been on 35 years, we're writing season 35 right now. We have become the mildest edgy animated show because there's Big Mouth and South Park and Family Guy and American Dad and everything else. So this thing right. that used to be so edgy and controversial has been surpassed by all these other even more edgy um, shows and more to come, I'm sure. So we get hit by it all the time, but I would think that the stuff that let's say Family Guy does or Big Mouth does, they get tenfold because they kind of push the envelope more than we do. So I guess that's a good spot to be, right? Kind of right below right below that edge of, of pissing people off all the time and they just enjoy the show. And you said something there that is exciting to me and uh, should be exciting to everybody because you said you're writing the 35th season right now and that must be new, right? Because the, the strike was going on for a long time. Obviously, you're somebody who would have been directly affected by that and a lot of your peers and, and colleagues over the years, same thing. So I don't know how deep you want to get into the weeds here, um, but you know that strike was going on for a long time. I think a lot of fans are start. We're starting to realize, like, oh my gosh, there's not a lot of new stuff coming out. What's going on? Mm-hmm. But now that you're back, how does it feel? And and what was it like not being able to kind of do what you've been doing for so long? Uh, well, yeah, the strike just ended. It was 148 days long. The writer strike. It's worth noting the actors are still on strike. Uh, they're like day 75, I'm going to say, mm. something like that. So they're still on strike. It's all the same issues that we were just. Um, in both cases, I think it's a blanket statement, but it was just a matter of actually trying to preserve these professions as actual viable professions. People can actually have food to eat. And and I know people think of actors and writers often as like these guys are making millions and millions of dollars, but that's the cream of the crop, like in everything in society. And then most people are actors and of course, writers, <clears throat> excuse me, you've never heard of that really are, are probably making less than uh, the average working person. So it was a matter of just protecting all the things that actually keep this a profession. That said, um, I was getting to be really good at picketing. A lot of scouts for other strikes were coming by and uh, trying to sign me for their pickets. Uh, but I was also very happy to stop it because uh, as a writer, what I'm best at is sitting in a chair at 10 a.m. and just having people bring me snacks all day, like veal and making me fat. And I was losing weight and I was having to exercise, which no one wants any of those things. Uh, but anyway, I'm very glad it's resolved. The next step is for the actors to, to be resolved. But we are actually back to work. Today is a Wednesday. On Friday, we actually are officially back to work, although I've already started doing some stuff um, you know, in advance of that. But we'll actually be together on Friday. And, and uh, I don't as far as The Simpsons goes, I don't even think viewers will probably notice uh, as much. There won't be new episodes because we had a bunch in the bank. Um, so they'll it'll kind of feel like mm. a regular season. But just know that behind the scenes, we are working like mad to try to fill in the gaps. 
And now something I was kind of curious about with the strike going on, I mean, no one could stop you from being at your house with your laptop writing, correct? So were people like you and, and your colleagues able to kind of get home and maybe even use some of this stuff as inspiration? Are we going to see a show about the strike in the next year or so? Like, it, was that something that, is there still productivity happening during this strike for people maybe just at their homes and not at the workplace? Is, or is that technically like not allowed to? Something I was kind of curious about. No, no, totally. I mean, you know, if you're a writer and whatever has driven you to write in the first place, that doesn't stop just because you're on strike. The difference is you can't sell anything um, to anybody that is a struck mm. company. Like, um, I'll just say, for example, that the book has garnered a lot of interest in it becoming a TV show or something, but we couldn't make any of those deals because of the strike. Uh, but uh, everybody I know, my mm. anyone that I know that's a writer, of course, we're writing what we call a spec movie, a speculative movie that I'm sure they'll want to sell now or a spec TV pilot. So now, like the last strike in 2007, there's going to be this flood of material that's been written because people had nothing but time um, and try to sell them as movies or as, you know, new TV shows or books. Um, and yeah, every, all that all that creativity had to go somewhere. It didn't stop, but you couldn't actually sell something during the strike. But now, of course, um, the strike is actually over as of midnight last night. So people are, I'm sure, are out hustling right now trying to sell the stuff they created over the last four months. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear it as an avid uh, fan of TV shows and movies. Like basically everyone else in the world, it's nice to, to hear you guys are getting some of the stuff that you really wanted and needed, frankly, because I thought your your point was really important that this is not about the people who have already made millions and millions of dollars. Just like when, you know, the NBA, NFL, or MLB strikes, yeah, you're not worried about Max Scherzer's $40 million a year contract or, right. you know, um, Aaron Rodgers' contract for that matter. But the training staff, the the low-level assistants who this is literally their livelihood, those are also the people who get affected by it, right? So it's not just, you know, Shonda Rhimes who has sold a million shows over her time or, or et cetera. It's about you know, the assistant writers on the fourth or fifth level shows on smaller networks who are also now hopefully getting more of what they deserve. So exciting stuff. And, and it's a good thing to see it uh, come to an end. Um, and, and to move on from the strike point here, let's close up more so on the book again. Yeah. I know you joked before about that. No one should read the book, but if, if you had to give your elevator pitch as to why people should read the book and why they should go for it, what is your, what is your pitch for that? Well, I'll say this. I mean, it, if you love the NFL, even if you hate the NFL, uh, you know the NFL. And I think the book is just where I hope it's different than all the other football books out there is hopefully it's very funny. And I, I think it is. I hope readers will as well. But it's just a fun, funny look at the NFL. We've all seen so many serious books about, you know, the history of the Philadelphia Eagles or whatever. And it's like, those are great. I love those books. I read those books like crazy. Dan and I and, you know, Dan Patrick is a, a sort of icon who's able to see the, the world of sports in a fun way. Um, we wanted to write a book that's not that book. And it's just a fun, funny look, but does have a lot of truth to it. A lot of information. People are actually learning stuff from it. So I just say if you care about the book, if you are a fan of the NFL or care about the book, pardon, care about the NFL, uh, if you have a friend, a family member, it's a great gift. It's just a fun, funny look at something we've all seen seriously for too long. It's great stuff. And Joel, where can people find you? Where, where, where are you at? Are you getting off jokes online as well? Or, or are you just keeping your your jokes to the uh, to the TV scripts? No, for the book, I started a Instagram and TikTok feed. That's the the handle is sports wrong, you know, sports wrong, W R O N G. So if, 
if anyone is uh, incredibly, if you can't, if you're worried that there's not enough content on TikTok or Instagram, have I got the answer for you? Um, so anyhow, you're welcome to follow me there. Every day, I just try to post one goofy thing um, about the world of sports, quite often about the NFL. Um, and other than that, uh, you know, I'm working the squeegee at an intersection near you. And and you're out of picket lines though, which is yeah, yeah, you know, good and bad because you were so good at it. But but now it's over. I'm I'm back guzzling <laughs> as much free ice cream and potato chips as I can. Watch out, Fox! Here I come. <laughs> All right, last thing, guys, who also contributed to this book, Andy Richter, who you have a history with. You wrote another book with him in the past. Adam Sandler wrote the forward. What is it like to have names and comedic icons like those be a part of the project you are? Now you're obviously not um, unfamiliar with being stapled with big time projects, obviously like the Simpsons and stuff like that. But to say Dan Patrick, Andy Richter, Adam Sandler, what's that been like for you to kind of put those names to a project with you? It's a score. And I'll also say, yes, I mean, to, to even be in the same book as Adam Sandler is is amazing. Andy Richter, I'm lucky enough to have worked with before, and he's so funny and so nice. So he contributed. But aside from them, too, we got right. I just went to writers who have worked on Saturday Live on The Simpsons, Big Bang Theory, Modern Family, um, NFL Network, the ESPYs, um, and, and just said, hey, I'm lazy want to do want to help me out and they were stupid enough to say yes um so the book has like these little essays popped throughout uh from all these really talented writers um and then of course the big names of andy richter and adam sandler um you know will ferrell was nice enough to give us an endorsement on the cover of the book um tony dungy um you know I, I, all of dan's cast and crew of his world but i also brought my world as well of what i hope are really really funny uh, comedy writers that wrote little essays. So it, the book has that fun texture of of uh, all the, the stuff from Dan and I, but then popped throughout as all these other people like Sandler and Richter, et cetera. It's a beautiful thing. And this is, again, the occasional accurate annals oh, thank of God. football. The NFL's oh, greatest players play scandals and screw-ups. And uh, speaking of screw-ups, I didn't do that twice. So we'll, we'll take that as a win. Uh, but Joel, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, do you have any last words for the podcast? Something I ask a lot of my guests. Do you have any last words? It could be anything. It could be, you know, a fantasy football take. It could be something about your job, your writing, some or just completely random thought. What do you got for us? Anything? I'd like to speak to the fans out there that believe the Jets are going to make the playoffs. And I'd like to quote from a, a letter that I like to, <laughs> to reference, which say, even the least wise doubter would shrink from such impiety. And uh, and take that. Take that, fans. <laughs> The Jets fans are in a dark place, man. You didn't have to go at them again. You didn't have to do it, but they, you know, no. they're used to it we, at this point. It's a there's tough, even a tough joke world in the book being a Jets about, fan. There's a joke in the book about, uh, you know, that sometimes Dan and I have little inter intermittent conversations in the middle, in the text of the book. And one of his is like, it's not fair to kick the Jets when they're down. And then the, the line is that the Jets kicker tried to kick them where they're down, but missed wide right. So, uh, you know, we, we pile on the Jets. <laughs> It's good. It's it's worth it. And you know what? The only thing worse than being a Jets fan is being a Jets, Mets, and Knicks fan, which yeah. thankfully at least I have the Giants having some success in my lifetime. And the Knicks might be the best team in New York right now, which is a sad statement to say because they're exactly. still the Knicks. Well, when they start the New York Basketball League, you are going to take the title, man. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. There we go. Can't wait. I can't yeah. wait. Joel Cohen, everybody. The occasional accurate Oh, not occasional. The occasionally accurate annals of football. NFL's greatest players play scandals and screw ups. You can find it anywhere you want to buy books. And Joel, it was a pleasure. Thanks for chatting with us. Thank you. 
Welcome to Subway Sports Talk. My name is Peter Kennedy. We're back with Andrew Kalanya talking baseball, which, uh, you know, it's over finally. Thank God the MLB season is over for everyone here in New York who had the, what's the opposite of a luxury, Drew? Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It just, just an absolute terrible time. Just mm. an absolute, you, you rode in steerage. So to all of you who had an absolutely terrible time watching New York baseball this year, it's over. And that's the positive. The Mets season's over. The Yankees season's over. The MLB season's over. Playoffs are going to continue on. If you're an MLB fan at large, enjoy that. There are some exciting teams. There are some exciting players. However, here in New York, there was none of that to speak of. It was mostly all negative. And joining me here to talk about those things, we'll sprinkle in the positive or two that exist for both sides, but mostly some Sad, sad baseball, and joining me is a happy, happy Andrew Kalanya, or is it a sad, sad Andrew Kalanya to talk some baseball? Well, listen, man, um, I, I had a lot of gambling losses the last couple of weeks, so I decided to uh, do an audit on myself, <laughs> and um, it came to the uh, the conclusion that I don't have a gambling problem, and that I'm going to continue on the path that I'm on, only down $800. I see zero flaws in your logic. I don't know if you're making an allusion to something, uh, but I think that that logic is perfectly accurate and you should continue with it. Keep on keeping on. The only real loser is the one who quits. Exactly. <laughs> and of course, that is a, a, actually alluding to the Yankees and their recent news about the so-called audit that they were going to take place that you informed me about before this podcast where... Uh, they didn't really exactly get audited and more or less just did some research, but we'll get into that in a little bit. The point of this episode here is yeah. once this baseball season officially comes to the end, Andrew Kalani is back. It's been a while since he's been on the podcast. We have to do a wrap up. We have to talk a little bit about this season and what we saw for, for a good, good chunk of a season that was just depressing, uh, underwhelming, sad, pick all the negative uh, words and adjectives that you want to pick. And you can po- pinpoint them towards both teams at all points of the season and it's something that we're not used to, especially Yankee fans, right? So even with all the negativity that can exist in the Yankee fan sphere, there's usually that silver lining of, but we still won 94 games and made the playoffs and have a chance. The Mets in recent history have had one or two years where that silver lining was the same. Yeah, there wasn't all you know rainbows and butterflies, but here we are in the playoffs with a chance. Here we are in the wildcard game with a chance. Not the case this year. Mets under 500. Yankees only two games above 500. And Drew, it was it was unfortunate. So let me just ask you with an overarching question before we get into our agenda for the day. How are you feeling that this season is now over? Is it pure relief? Is it excitement? What do you, what do you got for me? It's it's pure it's pure relief. Um, on one hand, you know, baseball is my favorite sport, and you know, the Yankees being my favorite television program, I miss them already. Uh, but. Uh, it's one of those things where you kind of you kind of need a break. You need to just uh, sit back and suffer and, and and allow to to you know the rest of this terrible terrible season to kind of just wash over you and uh, and just kind of move on and look forward to on uh, how they can improve and, and you know try to build on some of the positives if you know even there were there are very few of them uh, during the season. So you kind of kind of you know reset and then look forward to twenty twenty four. Yeah, it almost feels as if there's reasons to have some sort of excitement on the Mets side, and maybe we'll talk about some of that for the Yankees too. As soon as the season ended, it's a lot almost more like a lot more than on the Mets side than the Yankees hope. side. 
which I want to make sure we uh, remember that this was the same conversation we had last year. Oh, more expectation and more excitement on the Mets side than the Yankees side wasn't the case in 2023, but I hear your point and we will get to it. Um, but as soon as that season ended, fans are allowed to have hope again. Uh, they're allowed to look to the future again, allowed to make assumptions about how good certain players and units on a team can and should be. And that's where the Mets and Yankees are going to get back to. However, they get there from different directions for me. You know, I, I always get in this weird space with baseball when the Mets start getting truly out of a race. I was locked in this year. I was watching tons of games. I was watching as much as I possibly could every single night, even if it's in the background. I had the Mets on, and I'm keeping up, and I'm talking about it on this podcast with you and Alec, and we're tweeting about it, and all we're all excited about baseball, right? And then the, the all-star break hits, and for Mets fans, I'm sure there's plenty of Mets fans out there who feel similarly, similarly to me where it became very difficult to even care to turn SNY on on a Tuesday night. You're on this grind. You have this uh, long portion of the season to go with very little hope, and you don't have players that you're particularly excited about watching. Yes, you can point to some of the positives that we're going to get to in a little bit for good seasons by certain players. You can point to Kodai Senga, but generally speaking, there wasn't a true excitement for a future to, to watch for the Mets because you kind of just knew what you had that was good. You knew what you had that was bad, and it didn't draw me to tune in as frequently as I probably should have, but I'm not ashamed to say I wasn't tuning in. And, and it sounds like you had a little bit different. You, you tune into the Yankees basically no matter what. Did you feel any of that with the Yankees of like, hey, I know we're not going to be in this playoff race, but X, Y, and Z have me looking at the TV saying, at least I get to watch those guys. Well, yeah, you, you would tune into Garrett Cole's starts to, you know, because he, he's basically going to win the Cy Young this year. And, you know, when Judge came back, you kind of, you were saying, okay, you know, he missed uh, about a third of the season, but let's see him come back and let's see if we can, you know, run it back and see if we can squeak into a wild card spot. But then it kind of all went downhill in uh, July and August, especially when we hit the trade deadline when the Yankees did absolutely nothing. The, and and that was I think that was the real point of the season where I was where I was I I couldn't I, I just had that pit in my stomach I was like wow this is this is re- a truly a lost season because you could have picked in you could have went in two different directions and the Mets did the right thing and saw the opportunities and used their financial advantage to get get out of Scherzer which looks like an amazing amazing deal that they were able to get Acuna's brother. Um, you know, probably he's probably a top three prospect now in the Mets system. He's going to be up next year, be able to con- contribute to him. And Scherzer's not healthy enough to make, you know, starts for Texas in the postseason right now. It doesn't look like he's, you know, he's not going to be healthy next year. So uh, the good on Mets to be able to g- avoid that bullet. Um, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have David Stearns in to kind of uh, convince Verlander to stay, but. It's I, I think that's that's fine, too. But, you know, they made their choice. They made the choice. They got out of those contracts. They got rid of the 40 year old starting pitchers uh, and made it and made a conscious effort to improve down the line. The Yankees said. We have our teams, our team, we're and we're going to hold on to Harrison Bader, who then they later just put on waivers and they, you know, got they released him for saved like eight hundred thousand dollars instead of getting yeah, a prospect terrible. of any kind. It was just like. Come on, like that's that's the movie you're gonna make. And you know when you say that, Cashman said, "Oh, we're all in. We're all in on this team." Yeah, you're all in on this this terrible team. And you're saying, 
it's not worth adding to, even though, you know, the trade deadline, there weren't a ton of bats to add, but you could have at least tried. And when they didn't try, it was like, it was, it set, it set that message loud and clear. And they try to distract everybody with Jason Dominguez coming up and the kids coming up. And then of course what happens, Jason Dominguez needs Tommy John surgery, blows out his elbow and he's gone for nine, 10 months. And then, you know, typically when, when position players come back from Tommy John, it takes them a little while to to get back you saw it with Bryce Harper he you know he had to come back strictly as a DH and even then he didn't hit as many home runs it took him 50 60 games to get his home run stroke back so I you know you don't expect Jason Dominguez to be the player you saw probably until 2025 so oh the words 2025 (laughs) for some reason just really hurt yeah hit me right in the gut like you said 2025 I just like kind of got the chill and I was like ah did not like yeah. that at all, but but you're no. right. And what what fans say all the time when it comes to their teams is, we want you to pick a side. The worst thing you can do is middle. And when we had our last, it might have been actually our last episode. It was one of the most contentious episodes you, Alec, and I had on this podcast. I don't remember if it was the most recent one we did or maybe the one right before that when the season was still in the balance. Mm-hmm. But we were starting to get like into it about what the Yankees are doing, what they should do, what the Mets are doing, how those two things uh, are similar or dissimilar. And we got a little bit heated because I'm like, yeah, you guys are complaining about this and you're complaining about that, but you live in the playoffs and you don't understand what it's like on the other side. And you and Alec are saying, "What we need to strip this thing down. It's over. It's time. We need to strip. We need to make moves. And th- like you guys were doing the other thing. And I think now sitting here after that second half of the season, I more so understand where you guys are coming from, even though I think the caveat is you guys actually had that season where you weren't in the playoffs. This wasn't the typical Yankees down season where you still win 90 games, end up in the playoffs, but like, it makes so much sense to say Yankees pick a freaking lane. You can't just roll out the same squad. Cause we now know we have the evidence. We have the proof. If you're a data driven team, the data should tell you this team doesn't get it done. So pick something else, go all the way in, and just try to win one, and then the next five years might be shit, or strip it down and build. Sell pieces off and build. And the Mets did something that I think made Yankee fans jealous, where they took their pieces that weren't doing anything for them this year and got whatever the hell they could. Some of it might be good, sometimes maybe shit. And that's okay, because they picked a side. And that frustrates people to no end. Same thing happens with the Giants and the Jets right now in football. Like, there's going to be a point in the season if they're still, you know, one six, one seven, one and eight teams or two and nine, are you going to now try to fight and claw to get to six and and uh, and thirteen or whatever? What's the number now? Six and six, six and eleven. There you yeah. go. Twelve. I can't do math. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm trying to say. So. There's that point in every year for every organization. You have to make a decision. The Knicks have been there a million times. Do you not the same with the draft in baseball, but do you want to be the team that ends up with the seventh pick and a 30% chance at a franchise player? Or do you want to end up at a top three pick with a 65% chance at a franchise player? Again, not one-to-one to baseball, but the same damn concept. And here the Yankees are again with Aaron Boone, with Brian Cashman, rolling it back down the hill to see what the frick's going to happen. But, Andrew, we said we'd be yeah. positive to start this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just that so it's just well. so hard to but like you know. You, there's only so much you could say is you know that uh, the Dodgers the Dodgers fence robbed Aaron Judge of possibly going 60, 60 home runs back to back season, which I said was going to happen. 
And if he right. and if and he, he doesn't hurt. run into that, does he run into that uh, that stadium wall? Very possible. We're looking at two back to back sixty home run seasons. Um, and you know, there's only so much you can say about Garrett Cole having one of the better seasons in Yankee history. And that's where the positives stop. You know, we said every everything you could say, and now you know they they talked about the the, the audit, the self audit that uh, they said were initially the reports were. You know, we're going to, you know, have a third party, you know, do a full evaluation of us and get a, give us feedback on what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. And then the report come out today. It's no, we're, we're actually going to watch another company and then self-evaluate. So, so, oh, that's how they, that's how they, analyze. oh, we like how we analyze better. So there's nothing to do here. I wash. It's fine. And once you make personnel decisions, you know, about bringing Aaron Boone back and bringing Sean Casey back. Before the audit even happens, you know, it was just all, it was a complete bullshit to begin with. So no Yankee, no self-respected uh, Yankee fan should look at that audit and say, oh, they're really going to, they're really going to turn it around now. They're really going to, they're really going to self-evaluate. They're really going to be able to figure this thing out together. But you have the same people running, same people in the room, the same people, the same mindset, you know, unless the Yankees spend an absolute boatload of money, like video game, never going to happen type stuff. Like they sign Bellinger and Hayter and Yamamoto and then trade for Mike Trout. Then, then maybe they can, they can consider themselves world series contenders next year. But like outside of that, you know, if you go in with the say, Oh, we want to see the kids improve again. We want, we want to give them some more run. Like there are plenty of kids that, that looked overmatched in the bigs and, you know, do you really want to go with, you know, how they treated Anthony Volpe all year? Volpe probably should have got sent down at numerous points this year, but they gave him 160 games where you ended up with an OPS in the 600s. You know, he had 20 home runs, yeah. 20 steals. That's that's nice. Those are nice counting numbers. But all in all, he didn't have a good year. So are you really going to throw Pereira out in left field? Are you going to have Wells who hit like a buck 60 like is that who you're gonna just throw out there so like you know there, there was a there was a point where I said you know the kids couldn't be worse and the kids are were some of them were just as bad as Josh Donaldson some were just as bad as Aaron Hicks uh when he was in pinstripe and you know it wasn't it wasn't great that a lot of those guys left and then immediately had success elsewhere like Hicks and then Donaldson yeah. oh, is the Brewers that one must have stung like crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No yeah, Hicks, Hicks just hitting home runs. Uh, like yeah. it's just, and, and making plays and having a beard, like as a Yankee fan, if I was a Yankee yeah. fan, that would have drove me nuts. It would have drove me nuts. It really would have, um, we are going to be positive though. Cause we have to get those out of the way. There are some things we want to talk about positively for both of these teams, just cause you got to check those boxes of things that did go kind of well for these teams in 2023. Uh, but all your points are heard by me, and we'll get more into some of that stuff in just a moment. So, Drew, why don't you run past? I know you have a list for both sides here. Some things you yeah. kind of went through, jotted down for positives for both sides. And if anything I uh, want to add or critique, I will jump in. Uh, but why don't you hit us off with the Yankees positives in 2023? Yeah. Well, so like like I was saying before, it's it's basically Cole and Judge, and that and that, and that's about. And that's about it. Um, All right, you know, let's move on to the Mets positives in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> and so for the Mets, you know, I I like. No, I was kidding. I like you can keep talking about the Yankees. Uh, Sanga, <laughs> listen, there's not, there's nothing else to say, man. There's really nothing else to say about Judge and Cole. Like again, they, yeah. So the Judge is wasted. really good. Cole is really good. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like 
the, they, the Yankees wasted the prime years of their career that they're going to regret down the line saying, yeah, we, you know, they're basically turning into the Angels of the East. They wasted Mike Trout and Shohei Otani's prime, and the Yankees have just wasted a year of Judge and uh, and Cole's prime here. So they, they were great. Everybody else stunk. Uh, Glaber Torres was pretty good, too. He had, a, he had a bounce back year for himself, and he positioned himself to possibly stay in the organization long term because he's a free agent after next year. So... Um, I don't think they're looking to possibly replace him at second base. So I think he solidified his his spot on the roster, you know, going forward. Hopefully he continues that in the next year. But everywhere else, like, oh my goodness, John Carlos Stanton's the uh so bad. He's before so bad. You move on. <laughs> I can't really I, I really hope that the the probably the second best thing the Yankees could possibly do this offseason, aside from signing show signing Shohei Otani, is getting rid of John Carlos Stanton, somehow getting out mm. of the last hundred million dollars they owe him in his contract. Just a few she- shekels, just a few. Uh, let me ask you this. You probably know because you are a guy who's in tune with stats here. How many people on the Yankees have over a hundred OPS plus off the top of your head? Don't look. Oh God. Uh, two, two. All right. Nailed it. You didn't look that up, right? No. Too. Yeah, that's Judge. That that is correct. DJ LeMahieu, ninety six. Anthony Rizzo, ninety four. Obviously, he missed a bunch of games, uh, and that's about it. You got a few guys on the bench with a nineties rating for OPS plus. Billy McKinney, he only played forty eight games. He was uh, supposed to be the guy to save your season at some point in time. That obviously wasn't yeah. the case. Uh, that that was fun while it lasted. Uh, so that's pathetic. That's really rough. Only two guys with an OPS plus over the league average of one hundred. So that tells you all you need to know and why we should probably move on to the Mets positives. <laughs> yeah, it's just that there's no there are no positives to be had, and the bullpen was still good. The you know Ian Hamilton had a nice year. Clay Holmes had a good year, uh, but the Yankees can pull uh, you know pull a good bullpen out of thin air. So that's just one of their strengths as an organization. So uh, you know we pat themselves on the back for that, but I wouldn't consider that an over overly positive, noteworthy thing about the season since they seem to do that every single year. Fair enough. So let's move on to the Mets. What positives do you got on the Metsy side of things? Yeah, so Kodai Senga was, you know, there were a lot of questions going into the season about, you know, uh, what kind of pitcher is he going to be? And he immediately asserted himself one of the, I think he's going to finish top three in the NL Cy Young this year, which is which is a huge step uh, for the Mets and a big building block going forward. And now, um, you know, and there were, you know, a few questions about a lot of the kids going in this year. I know Beatty didn't have a good year. But Francisco Alvarez uh, cemented himself as a, a cornerstone of the Mets lineup going forward. 25 home runs, played incredible, you know, incredible defense here. I think he's going to, you know, a lot of the pitchers raved about how he called the game. So I think he really cemented himself. You know, you have a 21-year-old superstar catcher that's uh, that's ready to be a big building piece going forward. And, you know, along with uh, Nimmo and, uh, you know, uh, Lindor, you have, and uh, Alonzo, if he the Mets decide not to uh, trade him this offseason instead of, uh, you know, extending him, which would be a huge, huge mistake. Um, you know, you have five guys going into next year now that you can legitimately build the lineup around, and hopefully have a little more cohesion and a little bit more, you know, direction, whatever manager the, the Mets decide to bring in now, because 
Buck had a had a real inkling of just like didn't he did not want to play the kid to the point where Billy Epler had to trade Escobar away for him so to force him to play Beatty at third base like it was it was that bad and you know him playing Vogelback every every day it was and it was so it was just like how how long could the leash possibly be for some of these guys where it's very similar to the Yankees. Like, you know, if, if Donaldson was ever healthy, you know, they were going to run Donaldson out there for a hundred plus games, no matter how bad he was. And I just like, I didn't, I didn't get it. I'd never, I never understood. If you have these prospects here, you know, you got to let them, you got to let them run. If they're going to, if your veteran's going to suck, you might as well let the kids suck, take their, take their wounds. And then, you know, hopefully they learn and grow and then make adjustments because you have, they have, yep. they have actual futures. Eduardo Escobar, right. Dan Vogelback, Josh Donaldson, those guys did not have a, a future in the organization. It just, you know, you need to let the kids play. And, and you know, down the stretch they did play, you know, and um, Mauricio right. you know, looked pretty good from time to time. Um, you know, so th- there, are, there are a few, few positives that you, can, that you can continue to build on going forward. And, again, the Mets actually picking a direction at the trade deadline was, I think, an overall positive. Again, it – this season, going into you know looking back at the expectations that they had going to see, it was an absolute failure. Um, of, of uh, no matter how you slice it, but they positioned themselves to be able to say, "We learned from this mistake. We're not going to just run it back. We're not going to just say now we're going to have forty-one-year-old Verlander and forty-year-old Scherzer anchor the rotation and just." cross our fingers and hope it gets better. They'll just say, Hey, we're going to use the opportunity. And, you know, uh, Steve Cohen did exactly the right thing. What he should be doing to use his financial advantage to basically buy prospects instead of, and, and, you know, he's going to live with that dead money. And that's, that's exactly what a good owner who wants to win should do. So you have those, those players plus a positive direction and the addition of Dave Stearns uh, to look forward to for the Mets for 2024. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that are looking bright for the Mets going forward versus of what's you know what there is to look forward to for the Yankees next year. Yeah, so that that brings us to where we're going to go into now. What comes next for both of these teams? And and just to put a bow in some of those positives, you know, I was never a big Lindor blamer. I've always kind of stuck up for him. I thought the fact that he plays every night and plays good defense and hits for power and drives in runs is something that that Mets fans take for granted, right? Like you look at the shortstop position in the major leagues and there's just not many impressive hitters. He's one of the top five hitters at the position every single year. He was again this year, more or less, you know, give or take six or seven, if you want to get particular on what stats you're looking at there. But he gets jobs done. Like he, he drives and runs. He plays good defense. He shows up every single day with a good attitude. So I'm always pro Lindor. I think that's obvious. A lot of Mets fans don't, but I think some people came around on that this year. Like, okay, maybe he's not a super duper star, but he is a cornerstone and he is a star. And if this team was built properly, or if Jeff McNeil played to his baseball card and Mark Canna had the same year he had before, all of a sudden Lindor's numbers look even better. So yeah, maybe he's overpaid. Maybe he's not a super duper star, but he is important to this team and he's very, very good. Alonzo, to that conversation, let's get that out of the way here. The fact that people don't want to re-sign this guy 
it's kind of mind blowing yeah. to me, Drew. I don't understand it. I know there was negativity. I know some people don't think he's the coolest cat in the, in the building. I don't think he is. I think he's corny. I think that there's a, probably a lot of guys in the MLB who look at him and say, yeah, I'm not like running through a wall for Pete Alonzo. And that's okay. He's a freaking awesome hitter. He hits the ball hard all the time. He hits for power all the time. He's been one of the best power hitters in baseball since he joined the MLB. So where where am I missing something, Drew? Am I crazy to think it's crazy to not re-sign this guy? He is in line to be one of the greatest Mets of all time. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. He's that good. He puts up those level of numbers, and the power is something that's a necessity for this lineup. And again, if this lineup was what it should have been, his numbers would look even better. He would drive in more runs. And the guy who we're mad at for not carrying a bad team this year is now going to be a part and one of the leaders of a great team when this team is put together properly. So I think it's crazy. Drew, am I nuts to think people are nuts that they don't want to bring back Pete Alonso to New York? Yeah, no, he's absolutely like David Wright level of like Met player, Met cornerstone guy. And, and again, Power is something this team has desperately needed for years, and he's been the only source of, of power on this team. And he's a guy, you know, he's, I, I, again, he's corny, but he does seem like a, a pretty likable guy. Um, you know, his teammates play hard and for him. And he cares. Yeah, he absolutely cares. He's, you know, he's stuck through uh, so much of this, so much. The, the Will Ponds, he's been there. He's been through. He's been through all of it, and he still, you know, try, wants to be the kind of the face of the franchise. So, and that's something they desperately need. And that's a, again, he's not. I wouldn't say he's a top ten player in the league, but he's definitely top twenty. Um, you know, and I think that's again, if you're, if you're, if you're gonna gonna draw the line at Pete Alonso, like that's such a, that's such a bad line to you know to draw to draw that line at, like. Who are, you, who are you replacing with? Who, who are you going to go get? Like, Matt Olson's not available. Like, right. you know, if you say you want to go out and get Matt Olson instead, like last year or something like Where that. Is it? He doesn't exist. Yeah, there's not that type of player that's just readily available to step in to Pete Alonso and that you'll have a downgrade in production at first base and you'll be worse off. So, again, Alonso is what? She's 28 years old. Like, like come on. Just... It's not like he's some 32-year-old now about to reach free agency kind of guy. Like, you could sign him to an eight-year deal, and you could still reasonably expect him to put up 35 to 40 home runs every single year for the for the every contract. Year. So that's 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 an, e- that's an easy that's an easy choice for me to say. Uh, Pete Alonso okay. definitely needs to stay. I'm glad you're with me on that one, and we can move off of that because I really just think people who want to get rid of him just don't have a grasp of what this team should be trying to do. Honestly, like that's the only way I could say it. Like if you think that the reason the Mets stink is Pete Alonzo, if you think the reason or the way to get better is to move on from him, you're just missing it with this squad and with this player. Cause he's going to put up numbers for the rest of his career, or at least until he hits the mid 30 mark where people start to really slow down. He's got yeah. five years left of top tier baseball. Um, yeah. So I'm pro that Kodai Senga. Yeah. Put a pin in that. It's great to see him put together a full season, continue to strike people out at an incredibly high rate. I know I was probably higher on him than I know Alec was for sure. It's not like his numbers absolutely blow you away when you look at his numbers, but they're really freaking good. And we were hoping he would be 
a number two, number three guy in this rotation. He was clearly the best pitcher on the team this year. He probably could be a number one or number two again next year, depending on what they're able to add. But I think you walk into next year being, being very comfortable with Kodai Senga at the top portion of your rotation. Uh, there's a lot of holes to fill in this team, and we're not going to dive into every single corner of who they need to add and what they can add. We have a whole offseason to do those things. But the David Stearns part of it all is more important for us to talk about quickly before we get to the Yankees and what they need to do or, or think about or blow up the team. I don't freaking know. So David Stearns is like this hot commodity on, on the market. He's this guy who went to Harvard, super smart, started working in baseball, worked his way up. He's been working with the Brewers since 2015. And well, he's been the GM of the Brewers, I should say, since 2015. Highly regarded around town. It's been the worst kept secret in baseball that he was going to be courted by the Mets and become one of the Mets leaders in their executive branch. Yeah, for a long time. Seriously, it's been a long time. And they make it happen. He officially becomes uh, the leader of the New York Mets. He's the president of baseball operations. And that's exciting. But personally, Drew, I'm excited. And I don't really even know much about this guy. I've heard many things. I know that um, a lot of guys at the fan who are more tapped into this stuff than I am rave about David Stearns and couldn't wait for him to be named as a leader of this team. And he's here now. He's a young guy. He is uh, 38 years old. So, Drew, what what do Mets fans need to expect when they're going to see, oh, this bright new guy who's now joined the organization is going to flip the script for the New York Mets? Who is David Stearns and what's he all about? Why is he such a great signing or great hire for the Mets organization? Yeah, uh, first of all, he's 38 and I, I turned 36 in like two months. So that just makes me feel really bad Ouch. about myself. Um, anyway, but the, the, the thing that you should get excited about is that Stearns has an absolute eye for pitching talent. He's the guy who selected a lot, of, who was able to build that staff. Uh, that the Brewers have that, that are, that's literally the best in baseball. They're able to identify Corbin Burns, able to identify all those guys that they have over there in the rotations that, you know, built such a built such a great staff. They're able to coach those guys up and help them make adjustments because Burns wasn't this highly touted prospect. He got turned into one of the best pitchers in baseball. So you could you could say, hey, Stearns, maybe you can work some of your magic on um on McGill, on Peterson, who were who were atrocious this year, but again, they have they they still had the stuff. If you look at some of the stack ass numbers on on those guys, that they still have good raw stuff. It just seemed that they were able to um, use it in the best way, or whatever analytics that the Mets were using pitching wise um, didn't seem to be working um, in their favor. So you have to expect him to be able to come in and help. Uh, you know, find some hidden gems for the pitching staff and be able to build them up uh, in a way that makes them, you know, probably you can look forward to uh, their rotation being in the top, top of the league uh, in the very near future. So uh, that's, that's really his calling. David Stern's calling card is being able to build, you know, a strong, you know, pitching staff, not just the um, Starting rotation, but the bullpen too. Again, Devin Williams wasn't this highly regarded prospect too, and he, they were able to uh, adjust adjust some of his pitch selection um, and be able to kind of turn him into the the closer that he is. So, should be very excited about um, you know that hire and be able to that that change in philosophy and 
Um, and whoever they, you know, whoever they, whoever he picks to be manager, it could be Craig Council because he's a free agent yeah. at the end of the year. He could, Craig Council is highly regarded as one of the best managers in all of baseball that he could follow, you know, Stearns over from, you know, from Milwaukee over here. So uh, that, some, that was actually going to be my next question too with the manager position with Buck going out. And I don't want to do a whole thing on Buck and, and his shortcomings and his positives from the first year because it's been talked about at nauseum. Uh, obviously he hit the ground running, did a great job in year one, did a really bad job in year two, and it, it was over, right? It, it had to be done. And the Mets ripped the bandit off, Buck ripped the bandit off, whatever you want to say. It's over and they're moving on. So you mentioned Craig Council, but I just want to ask a general question. Is there a type of manager, and maybe Craig Council is the answer, but is there a type of manager that you see fit for this organization? Yeah, well, you know, Buck did Buck did his job. He brought legitimacy back after the Mickey Calloway, mm, uh, Miguel, Roja, Miguel Rojas years. Carlos so, Beltran. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he brought some legitimacy back to there. He was able to, you know, be that kind of father-like figure. But I think that um, the players need uh, – and again, he – Buck's not uh, a play the young young kids kind of guy. Again, he had to have uh, Guardo Escobar basically yanked from him. Uh, and, and you're still, you know, forced to play Beatty every day. So I think you need you need someone who's a little more analytically inclined, but can also relate to the players on a real level. So you have that, you know, Craig Council, who was a major leaguer for I don't know, I think like 15 years, 15 plus years. Right. So you have a someone who's been there who has the mind of a player, but also you know a pretty good eye for analytics too. At the same time, be able to. Uh, related to the players in a way for that's digestible for them. So I think council, yeah. you know, that, that the best kind of the, the match uh, made in heaven for the Mets. Hopefully they can, uh, they can go out and get him. He's the leader in the clubhouse for now until he may become the leader in the clubhouse. Ah, yeah. See what I did there. All right. Um, so that's the Mets story really. And, and, you know, again, we'll talk more about specifics of who they can go after and what they need to do in the off season. As we get closer to that point in time, we don't have time for it right now. So let's move on to the Yankees. Let me just ask you this quickly. Were you even shocked at all that Aaron Boone remains the New York Yankees manager? Were you shocked even a little bit, Drew, that he did not get let go? No, no, not because they're mm. just an absolutely unserious organization mm. from top to bottom. Mm. This, the definition, they're like when the Yankees make little to no moves the offseason and then blame it on injuries and say, you know, if Judge didn't run into the wall, if we didn't mis- misdiagnose Anthony Rizzo's concussion for three months, you know, that won't happen again. So, you know, we had bad luck and, you know, Guys got hurt, but we got the kids now, so we're gonna play the kids. And this, you know, it's just the that the second that report came out, I was like, of course, of course, that's what's what's gonna continue the, the to happen. And Sean Casey, you know, they fired the hitting coach as a desperate move, and then they hit worse under Sean Casey. They like, yeah. which they, like, look, come on, let's be honest. Hitting coaches in the MLB, yes, they they have importance, and I'm not saying that they're nothing, and it's a dumb position. But if you think a hitting coach is going to come in and completely change your season, let, let's be real here. It's about the yeah. talent. At one yeah. point, the talent is going to show out for better or worse. And Sean Casey does not have a magic wand in the shape of a Louisville slugger here to switch, uh, flip the script for this Yankees offense. That, that's just, you know, it's crazy to me. But the word that comes to mind when I hear you talking is just uninspired. There is no 
inspiration and there's no oomph, there's no gumption in the Yankees organization right now. A team, an organization that was built off of just powerful vibes forever of being the biggest, baddest team in the league of we got the guys, we got the horses, come play with us, right? Now they're the team that's saying, okay, maybe in a little while our guys will be ready and we'll be able to compete. It's just a complete flip of the script in the wrong direction for the Yankees and there's no inspiration for what they're trying to accomplish. Like the fact that when I asked you that question that you were shocked at all, your first reaction was, Ugh. like that's all we need to hear. It's numb. That's what it is for Yankees fans right now. It's numbness to the fact that you have a manager that no one believes in. You have a roster full of holes and old players and young guys who haven't really hit a stride yet. There's not much to turn to from a positive perspective. And this right now, and I won't count them out completely because they have done it before, but this right now looks like a team that's going to be rudderless for at least another year or two. And that's that's a sad thing to say when we're talking about the premier franchise or so-called premier franchise in baseball. It's just sad. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the thing. One one part of it is like it didn't matter who the manager was. Like John Carlos Stanton's OPS was under 700 this year. Like Anthony Rizzo was playing with a concussion. He was hurt. Uh, DJ LeMay, who was lost for most of the season, like just not playing well. And you already punted. Left, you didn't have a left fielder. You had a rookie shortstop. You didn't have – you went into the season saying, we're, we're not going to look to get offense out of the catching position. And, and you know, Harrison Bader was hurt too. So it was like, you know, what is there exactly is there a manager to do? On the other hand, Aaron Boone is lauded as this guy, this master communicator, this guy that players relate to that – that Aaron Judge said at the end of the day, I love I love playing for Aaron Boone. He's he has my back. Like this is this is my buddy. And it's just like none of that, none of none of that's trans that's that's great. And I'm I'm happy that Aaron Judge is happy, but it's not translating to wins on the field. And at a certain point, like the results have to matter. Like you can't, you can't, you can only say for so long, our process is good. Our process is just waiting for the results. The results are going to come. The results are going to come. And, and, and now you, you've seen the result of them running it back basically with the same roster that they had last year. And I, I knew this was going to, I knew the offense was going to be bad. Go replay the, the, the season preview episode. I said, yeah. this offense stinks. They stink. And, and, you know, they ran it back and they have to make serious changes and multiple positions on the diamond uh, to even have, you know, a chance of getting into the playoffs next year. Like things, could, like certain things could break right. Like yeah, if Aaron Judge stays healthy and Rizzo stays healthy, um, maybe they sneak into like a third place wild card. And if that's if that's your thing, saying you're just gonna cross your fingers and say, hey, we're gonna hope for health, and you know, we'll and you know go with the organizational philosophy of just make the playoffs and, uh, you know, just it, it's a crapshoot. It used to be World Series or bust, right. and now it's just make the playoffs and hope for the best. So mm. it's just a it's just a bad organizational philosophy uh, from the top down. And, and again, unless Hal Steinbrenner seriously opens up the checkbook to Steve Cohen-esque levels, like the Yankees are shouldn't be in anyone's eyes considered to be World Series contenders in 2024 or even 2025. And for the first time in a long time, they may enter 
an MLB season as like the third or fourth ranked team in the AL East because the Orioles obviously are that young team with juice. The Rays are the Rays, and the Blue Jays and Red Sox are in the same boat, give or take, right? Like the Blue Jays have more talent right now. The Red Sox kind of had a poor season, at least a poor end of the season as well. The Orioles showed up and, and did the damn thing, and the Rays are the Rays, right? So you're not exactly in a position of power where you're going to look at next season and say, yeah, no, we're expected to be, win the AL East. You're not going to be, and mm-hmm. that's a weird place to be uh, for Yankees fans and the Yankees organization. I don't know what the hell they have to do because right now none of the things that you and I can sit here and say they should do are reasonably believed to take place. Yeah. That's part of the problem too. All these things that Yankee fans have been clamoring for and people are saying they have to do, you have no reason to believe that they're going to happen. And and that puts you in, in a terribly tough spot to say, yeah, this is it. And also to make a cross-sport analogy here, which I do frequently, to say that your manager is a guy who's got your back and is your buddy and you like playing for him is not comparable to wins. It reminds me of when LeBron James become, becomes Le, LeBron GM, Le GM James, right? It never usually ends well when all of a sudden LeBron is getting all of his buddies in town and now all these old guys who he knows for a long time and he trusts them and he likes playing with them are now his teammates. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, same thing. Oh, they're the GMs now. Let's get DeAndre Jordan in Brooklyn. He sucks. What are we doing, right? It's not typically a positive when players are really happy with somebody or with the guys that they like to be around. No one talks about Greg Popovich or Steve Kerr, or I don't know what the comparison would be uh, from a baseball perspective, from a manager standpoint, but no one talks about these legendary coaches and says, yeah, I just, I just like Steve Kerr as a guy, man. Like he's just, he's a good hang. He has my back. Like that's not what, that's not what people say about these people. They, They say they push me. They make me work hard. They hold us to a standard. And oh yeah, he's a great guy and I like him. Like that's usually the secondary thing. That's the icing on the cake. When you yeah. have a coach that does all the good things and you like him, boom, victory. That's beautiful. But you do not hear about the greatest coaches in all of sports that they're good guys and you like to play for them because they, you like being around them. You yeah. usually hear these guys push us. These guys work harder than anyone in the room. And on top of that, I like him and I'll play hard for him every day, right? Like that's a very fine line of saying, oh, good guy versus good coach who I happen to like as well. It's a yeah. big difference. And Aaron Boone's not on the right side of the coin. Yeah, absolutely. And I think overall, the most like disappointing thing about this entire season was like the AL is, hasn't, has been more wide open now than it's ever been. Like there's like the, between the Rays and the Orioles, they have like three and a half, like decent starting pitchers between the two of them. The Astros barely snuck into the playoffs this year. Like, if the Yankees, if there was ever going to be a year where the Yankees were able to 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 slay that dragon, to be able to go to the World Series, like this was their year to be able to do it. And then they turned it into eighty-two wins, the worst, you know, the the winning streak. The winning streak for the Yankees is still alive, barely, um, but you know, the worst the worst season they've had since nineteen ninety-two. So I was, uh, yeah, I was five. And, and the AL had uh, three winning teams in the East, one in the Central, and three in the West. the The National League had three winning teams in every division. Yeah. Like that's a huge difference. That's nine teams that are relevant in playoff with hopeful expectations versus uh, six or seven 
in yeah. the AL, like that's a that's a pretty big difference in, in today's day and age with all the all the teams that make it via wild card and everything. Yeah, and especially and they made and MLB made it easier for teams to to make it to make the playoffs, and the Yankees still couldn't clear that very very low bar this year. And uh, yeah, it's just a lot of things need to change, and a lot of things I don't think are going to. So it's uh, mm. you know there's there's a lot of there's you know there's points where. The Yankees would win like five games uh, in a row. Uh, I think it was like the beginning of August where they won like five or six in a row. I'm like, oh, this is this is the run, and then they followed it up by like losing like five or six more in a row. And I was just like, okay, mm-hmm. like this this yeah. is you know you you get you kind of get fooled in the thinking and that like you you kind of got fooled in the offseason like oh the Yankees are gonna get Rodon and then you know Hal Bryant Steinberg said we're not done yet, but then they were actually done. So, yeah. like, <laughs> I, I think Yankees fans are, are going to be clamoring for a move that ultimately probably is not going to happen. So, yeah, you know, you can, dream, you can dream of a lot of things. You can dream of Juan Soto getting traded to the Yankees, but very unlikely that's going to happen. So, you know, uh, you can you can have this pie in the sky thought, but the reality is it's 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 until until proven otherwise, the Yankees are very much a directionless uh, kind of franchise going forward. That's all I got to say, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I hardly had this much to say. It's yeah. been one of those things, and, and that's why I keep going back to the word uninspiring. It's almost to the point now where in New York, you're not even hearing the outrage and the anger, and that should be the number one sign that something's wrong with the Yankees, honestly. Because all these years where Yankee fans are irate at an end of a season, how dare they bring back Aaron Boone? I can't believe he's still the manager. And there's true anger because there's true expectation. And this year, and again, I asked you because I'm just not, especially in October with football season starting and basketball around the corner, I am not in the weeds of of baseball Twitter like I am, you know, three, four months ago. I haven't seen the outrage. I haven't seen the Yankee fan saying, I can't believe this organization. What a disgrace. This place, I'm blah, 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 all this all this negative stuff. And that tells me everything I need to know because if a Yankee fan is sitting there saying, oh, this happened? Yeah, that's what I expected. This still sucks. Like that is worse than Yankee fans being pissed off, honestly, because that's an almost an admittance of defeat or an admittance of mediocrity that – is not where this place needs this team needs to be. You need to be either going all in or stripping it all the way down, and they're just flying through the middle, doing nothing, doing nothing. You know, as uh, as the great the great Paul Rudd once said, and, "Oh, you got to do more than that. Oh, do less. Nope. Now, now you're just doing nothing." <laughs> and forgetting Sarah Marshall, that's where the Yankees are right now. Do more. Do more. No, no. Actually, do a lot less. Nope. Now, now you're just doing nothing. That's the Yankees in a nutshell. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you another, Paul. Right? When someone asks me uh, if I want to talk about baseball anymore, I'll say, no, thanks. I'll have a Minotaur <laughs> instead. <laughs> what is that from? Is that from? You never saw uh, um, what was the one with Charles William Scott where he's like they're the yes. big brothers. Or, I can't think. Oh, God. Why can't I think of the name of that movie now? Oh, my God. Look it up. <laughs> this is going to be the only positive thing to come out of this podcast. And now I can't think of it. It's going to kill me when you say it. Yeah. Um. Oh, well, great podcasting by us here, huh? Role models. Role models. Role models. 
Yes. God, I had it on it, the tip of my tongue. I couldn't get there. Fantastic. Yeah, really that, that's movie. a fantastic movie. If we if we just talk about Paul Rudd movies, it'd be more exciting than talking about the Yankees and Mets right now. That's all we got, Drew. I don't know if you have any last words. Do you got anything to add? I, I'll say this as my last words while you think of yours. Uh, what a place to be in New York sports where we are now relying on the New York Knicks and New York Rangers. I mean, if you count the Devils and Isles, they're pretty good. But the New York Knicks and New York Rangers are now the ones we have to rely on to have positivity in New York sports, Drew. It's not a good place to be. And as excited as I am for this Knicks season, it makes me nervous that they might be the best team in New York that people truly, truly care about at a widespread margin. Yeah, the the Rangers uh, had a pretty uninspiring offseason themselves and haven't really looked too great in the uh, the preseason too. So not really, um, you know, their coaching change that they made in the offseason too. It's not wasn't really inspiring either. But um, my last thoughts again, the, this baseball season was pretty miserable. Um, you know, I'm going to try to enjoy the playoffs, um, you know, but I, I will, I will miss baseball while it's gone. Um, I'll try to enjoy the playoffs and, you know, pick the Dodgers and root for them to win the world series because that's who the Yankees should try to model their franchise off of. So, and plus they got Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and, and a bunch of likable guys. So I'll be rooting for the Dodgers this postseason. So uh, go Dodgers. There you go. And you get to enjoy the MLB postseason as a unpartial uh, viewer, which could be more enjoyable for you instead of being miserable about the Yankees. So. All right. Mets and Yankees wrap up. Put a pin in it. Put a fork in them. They're done. Thank God they're done. It was a long haul through the end of summer and September, but we made it to the other side. And now at least maybe some of us fans are able to have some hope again for our New York Mets and New York Yankees. So we will do more as the hot stove kicks off, or as I like to call it, the lukewarm microwave right microwavable dish that is the MLB offseason occasionally we'll talk about it we'll do some more on the Mets manager when they make that decision and uh, as well as free agent targets and trades and etc but right now it's still football season basketball season's around the block hopefully you enjoyed that interview with Joel Cohen writer from the Simpsons and author of a new football book with Dan Patrick that was a great time talking to him that's all we got though Drew and if you didn't see that if you're watching this on YouTube I'll say this if you didn't see the interview with Joel Cohen go watch that it's really fun Talked about the Simpsons, talked about writing, talked about football, joked about the Jets, talked about Dan Patrick, talked about the writer strike. We had a lot of great stuff, and we had a lot of fun with Joel Cohen. So if you didn't see that on YouTube, go check that video out. It's separate. But on the podcast, if you got here, you either skipped him or you already listened to it. So I guess thanks for either one you chose there for being here at this point of the episode. So that's all we got. Andrew Klanya, one of our designated hitters, back talking baseball. We'll talk to you soon, Drew. It was good chatting. Oh, that's all we got. Subway Sports Talk. I'm Pete Kennedy. Cheers. See ya.